On January 5th, 1992, an American teenager leaves her workplace to go to a nearby bank in Gilmer, Texas. The next morning, her car is found still at work with the tires slashed, but she is never seen again. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruise Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Kelly Day Wilson. January 5th, 1992, 17-year-old Kelly Wilson was closing up here at what used to be Northeast Texas video in Gilmer. It was on that night. Kelly would walk out of these doors behind me, get in her car, and never be seen again. I said something like, I said, do you open tomorrow? She said, yeah, and I said, okay, I'll see you. And that was it. What store manager Joe Henry didn't know was that he would never see Kelly again. You know, it was normal evening, Sunday evening, and we closed the store about, it was right at 8 p.m., and there's a procedure to close. You have to do the deposits and get everything done. And so we got through about 8.30. So we left at 8.30, just thereabouts, walked out. She gets in her car, I get in my truck, and I leave, and she's going to the bank to make the night deposit. So I didn't hear anything in Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. So we had a new patron at the. What does that make? Seventy-five thousand. I wish dollars we a month. All, we're raking we, we could both retire. Uh, Miss Christy Drake. I saw you buy that new bass boat. Shit. Yeah. Don't think you could hide that shit from me. Yeah. I was out there on Lake Woman of Winnipesoka catching him carp. Carp? Oh, yeah. Lake Winnipesoka. Good Lord. If you don't know about Lake Winnipesoka. <laughs> I was about to say, come on, man. Shit. We also had a five-star review. Wait, 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 wait. You didn't give the name of the patron. I did, too. It's Miss Christy Drake. Oh, I know that name. She's been a long-time fan. Good, 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 good. Um, oh, yeah, our five-star review. Getting some love, man. Can't beat that. We got a five-star review from a Mabab three-hour M A M A B three H R. If I said it wrong, hey, come on, that's on you. But we appreciate it. it. Says fellow rabbit holers, and then he said that sounded kind of dirty. <laughs> Moving right along, I went down a Karen Silkwood rabbit hole a few months back and found you. You did a great job. Been listening since then. Even went all the way back to that very first podcast you did. Thought it was my phone at first. LOL. Don't even care. Seriously, my favorite podcast. Wish I'd found you sooner. Double hearts and deuces. Sweet. Sweet, can't sweet. beat that. Nope, you can't. Beat that, my brother. We can't. But anyway, the most important thing of all time. We had Christmas come early. If you sound that, you heard that correctly. I'm drinking a good old-fashioned beer. From our great friend, Lummy Joe Lisson, Linson, sorry, and his lovely wife, Melanie, who is celebrating a birthday. And he was kind enough to bring us a metric sh- 
shitload of beer <laughs> that I have still not shared with you, but I'm enjoying it myself. I'm drinking a Shiner Texas Tex Hex Brujas Brew IPA, and it is heckin' fantastic. <laughs> so he did a great job on that, and we appreciate the hell out of it. So happy birthday, Melanie, and keep up the good work. That's right. That's right. All right, so let's get into it, boys and girls. We are talking about Kelly Day Wilson, who was born on May 18th, 1974, in Natchitoches, Louisiana. Now, not much is known about Kelly's early life. However, we do know that she moved to Gilmer, Texas with her mother around 1990. Kelly's parents separated, and after living with her dad in Louisiana for a while, she decided to live with her mom. Kelly was your average 17-year-old high school senior attending Gilmer High in 1992 and was dating Chris Denton. Chris was said to be a hothead, but there are really no records indicating what time of relationship that Chris and Kelly had. There is a news channel, I think it's a three-minute video out near Gilmer, and they show, I think, Chris and Kelly going to the prom the previous year. So, on January 5th, 1992, Kelly went to work at the North Texas Video Rental Store, which was located at 100 Buffalo Street on the Square in Gilmer. She was working with Joe Henry, the manager and owner of North Texas Video. Now, Joe also owned Joe's Place, Juicy Hamburgers. Both establishments... Well, yeah, it does. Both establishments were on the Square in Gilmer. Kelly was wearing a dark purple rugby-style shirt with a red, gold, and white insignia and a white collar and cuffs. Stonewashed cut-off blue jean shorts that had strings hanging down, white socks, and brown suede loafers. And yes, that was the style in the early 90s. She also had on a gold domed ring, a gold and emerald ring, a gold bracelet, a gold watch, triangular earrings, and a gold and diamond ring with an inset Mexican coin showing the image of an eagle. Now, the video store closed at 8 p.m. that evening, and Kelly left to go make the nightly deposit around 8.30. Now, the bank at which the store made deposits was literally around the corner from the video store. The bank security cameras show Kelly's gold 1985 Dodge Charger pull up to the night deposit and drop off the store's deposit bags. According to the police and people who have seen the security footage, it is worse than you can imagine for security footage. It is very, That's very... 1992, though. I mean, well, the hell, security footage is great now, so I'm sure in 1992 it was fucking terrible. That's what I was about to say. We can't get good security cameras... Now, much less back then. Now, according to police and people who have seen it, it's far worse than you can imagine, and it is extremely grainy. And depending on which article you read, you can see Kelly and supposedly a passenger, or then you watch it again, and it's just Kelly. So that's how bad the security footage really is. You can't make out it is Kelly, but it is a female, and then sometimes, depending on what you read, there's a passenger, and sometimes people are like, nope, there's nobody there. Well, like I mean, like I said, you can't even really tell it's Kelly. Yeah, no. There's no proof of any of it. It's just maybe a female. Now, Kelly was supposed to leave work and head over to a friend's house that night and spend the night with her friend. 
And Kelly's mother would contact the store owner, Joe Henry, on the morning of January 6th and ask if he had heard from Kelly. Joe stated, quote, I didn't hear anything further about that until in the morning around 6 a.m. And Kelly's mom asked if she had said anything about going somewhere the night before. She was supposed to go to a friend's house, but I don't know anything about that, end quote. Now, alarmed by not finding any information from Joe, Kelly's stepfather would drive to the video store. There, he would find Kelly's car with her purse and her belongings inside. What was shocking was the left rear tire had been slashed. And we'll post a picture of that 1985 Dodge. Was it just the one tire? That's what it appears. I I read it was all four. Well, the way the photo is on WebSleuth, someone did their due diligence on WebSleuth and posted a picture of it. And it is, I mean, it's a vintage 85. And it's, you can tell that the tire is basically fat, fat, flat. And uh, it's been run basically off the rim and the tire's shifted into the car towards the axle. Yeah, okay. I, I'm looking at that picture. I just looked at web sluice. Yeah. It doesn't look like the front tire slash, so maybe it was just the back one. Now, what's odd is that's the only thing that is, I guess, awry, except for the fact that there's no keys to her car. So everything she owns is in it except for the keys. And the left rear tire is slashed. Now, Kelly's mom, once Kelly's stepdad calls her and lets her know that they found the car, someone, and I don't know who, but someone contacts authorities. They report Kelly missing. But the mom does get on the phone and let the father know who is living in Louisiana. And he immediately heads to Gilmer, Texas. Now, first on the suspect list was a 17-year-old, or 18-year-old, depending on, again, what is read, skater, skater dude, man. And Don't be bad on skating, bro. <laughs> Skateboarding is not a crime. That's right, that's right, that's right. And basically, it's just a kid that someone may have seen that night and so the police kind of take down his name, and his name is Michael Bibby. And he had been seen near Kelly's car that evening, but he was nowhere to be found, according to Joe, when he and Kelly were leaving after the store closed. Now, one thing that is odd is, from what I could find, when police take possession of the car, they never forensically examine it. They never fingerprint it. They don't, you know, I know CSI was new in 92, but they don't do any kind of fingerprints or anything like that. Maybe an opportunity missed there. Joe Henry, the store owner, was looked at kind of briefly because he was the last person to see her that night, but he was quickly ruled out as a primary suspect because his mother had actually been very ill and he was going between the video store and his mother's house 
to take care of her. And as he was pulling off, Kelly was getting into her car, according to Joe. And his alibi is pretty rock solid, and they checked everything out. And sure enough, he's good to go. He says, quote, Kelly was standing by her car as I drove away. Now, Sergeant James Brown, that's right. James the James Brown. Brown? Sergeant James York Brown. Oh, not the singer? No, no. With the oh. Gilmer Police Department, gets the case and immediately jumps into action. And he's probably one of the top detectives that we have discussed in our long-storied career here. From what I can gather, he was, you know, boots on the ground. He was running down leads. He um, he hears about the 17-year-old Michael Bibby, so he brings him in and kind of leans on him a little bit. And just like most 17-year-olds, you may act hard until you're in that little bitty room. And then... Yeah, crying for your mommy. Yeah. And so Bibby just confesses to slashing her tire. He's like, yeah, I did it. And... They're like, well, what about she works with a lady. Her tire was slashed, you know, just a week before. Yep, I did that too. So basically, after he confesses, what we have is a serial tire slasher and a grade A 17-year-old turd. Now, well, here's, that guarantees that if you're willing to slash two tires, you're definitely willing to abduct a 17-year-old girl. Yeah, you I mean, being 17 and just having a skateboard, so... And you rode Slash off. Tires. Slashing tires is a gateway drug to murder. You're right, man. You're right. It has been. Now, I will say this. Don't go slashing tires in Gilmer because I don't, don't know. Don't go slashing tires. <laughs> <laughs> I don't... They did teach us that in D.A.R.E. Remember they said, I remember, don't, don't do drugs. Don't slash don't tires. Slash, it leads to murder. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a jumping off point. It's got to be. So I don't know if they, like, just, he confesses to slashing, like, 10 or 12 tires or what, but they basically hit the old boy with criminal mischief, and he serves 90 days in the old jail. Damn. Yeah, 90 days at 17. Yes, sir. That sounds like a stiff fine yes. to me. Not 90 days. 90 days and a fine. So that's why I'm thinking old boy started singing like a canary and they hit him with everyone he sung about. Dude, you don't go slashing tires in Gilmer, Texas. That's buddy. what I was saying, man. Don't you don't you dare. Don't you do it. And now, said you better not. You better you not. Better not. <laughs> I was I was electrical fire. Totally, totally. What'd I say? Oh yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> totally electrical. <laughs> So Sergeant Brown is working his tail off on the investigation and is chasing down several leads in the case, and he would go as far as to start collecting money along with contributing a large portion of his own personal savings to get a billboard erected with Kelly's missing information on it. Erected. <laughs> now, <laughs> s- <laughs> Sergeant Brown starts to theorize that Kelly's tire was slashed when she got in the car and headed to the bank. It was along this drive that he thinks she realizes something's wrong with her tire and heads back to the video store parking alongside of the building. And this would explain why the deposit was made and why her car was not usually parked along the side of the building. Now, a lot of people have put a lot of stock in that grainy security footage that shows Kelly's car dropping off the deposit. It's been theorized that this was not Kelly driving and she was in the passenger seat. 
Which, if you take a minute and think about it, this is ridiculous. Because if you're going to abduct someone who is carrying the store's nightly deposit, why in the hell would you not take the money too? I mean, See, this, I mean, this, that's been a recurring thing on several cases we've covered. They've left money. Like with Blair Adams they, and several others that I can't recall at the moment, they leave the money. I don't care what crime I'm there for. I don't care if I'm there to kidnap you. I don't care if I'm there to murder you. I don't care if I'm there to assault you. I'm taking the money. <laughs> it's a bonus. Think of it as your bonus. <laughs> that's exactly right. And that's what I was about to say. Adams, they left what? Platinum $6, gold. dollars in cash and then platinum and gold bars. Yeah. Like, you killed the man. Take that shit. And I'm not I'll thinking. I'll understand it. I'm not thinking that this nightly deposit was, it may have been 150 bucks. Yeah, but guess what? That's 150 Ain't bucks that you I, didn't know you had. Yeah, exactly. Didn't you, you didn't have that before the night started, so that's a, you know, that's a bonus. And last time I checked, cash ain't traceable unless you get the FBI involved. I mean, 1992, $150, that's at least what? Seven, I, I mean, it'd be at least $127 now. Uh, so the Gilmer PD and Sergeant Brown seem to be zeroing in and looking real specifically at the boyfriend, Mr. Chris Denton, and his cousin, Brent Ward. Now, there's not a whole lot out there about old Brent, cousin Brent, but what I could find says that Brent would wind up telling authorities that he and Chris were out riding around in a pickup truck together on the night that Kelly went missing. When asked to take a polygraph, he agrees and fails miserably. Now, y'all know how we feel about polygraphs. We don't put a whole don't lot of... Don't take them, folks. Yeah. Don't take them. I'm not putting a whole lot into the failed polygraph test because if he is 17 and you just found out that your buddy, Bibby, has got 90 days for slashing tires, I'm pretty sure you're a nervous wreck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So he did 90 days for slashing tires. I committed murder. <laughs> They're going to kill me. <laughs> now, what is interesting is that in 1995, old Brent gets convicted and sentenced to three years in prison for perjury after lying to a grand jury about being at work on the day of Kelly's disappearance. Sergeant Brown doing his due diligence goes and gets a hold of the timesheets where young Brent, or I'm sorry, Cousin Brent, is working and discovers that not only was Cousin Brent not at work on the night in question, but he also doubled down and approached a co-worker and a supervisor and asked them to lie for him, saying that he was working. Yeah, that's not smart. No, no, not smart. So his supervisor is the one that basically testified at the grand jury proceedings and... His testimony caught Cousin Brent in the lie. Now, before he asked his supervisor what was going on, or to cover for him, he supposedly was overheard saying that he and two of his friends had gone to the video store messing around with Kelly 15 minutes before it closed. When asked about whether Brent and Chris were seen by the owner, Joe Henry, Joe would state that he could not remember if they were there or not. 
Now, I know that seems kind of odd if there's only two people working at a little town in Texas video store. But listening to the podcast, The Trail Went Cold, on their episode of this, the podcaster Robin Warder, who heads that magnificent podcast up, states that he was actually a manager at a blockbuster in the early 90s, and it was customary for the clerk to remain at the front of the store and the manager to head back to the back office to get the nightly deposit ready. And that would make sense. You would leave basically your hourly employee up there to take care of any last-minute customers that are coming in, dropping off videos, and then restocking. And I know this is foreign to a lot of our generation, millennial, whatever the hell's. But... It's like Gen... I fucking don't know. I don't either. I just know us... I just know us Gen Xers, we lived for the Blockbuster. Oh, yeah, man. Friday night Blockbuster. What? And being a cheap ass, when I first started teaching, I'd go rent the new release Xbox games and play the shit out of them and then take them some bitches back. (laughs) When I was in high school, my sister worked at the movie theater. I don't think I ever went on a date that wasn't a movie. (laughs) I don't doubt it. I'm pretty sure I got a few dates just because I could get them into the movies for free. No, man, it was your charm and your good looks. Well, I don't know what the hell happened to them things. <laughs> they ain't been around for years. Oh, now let's get back to old good old Brent, cousin Brent. He would go on and tell a girlfriend to lie about where he and Chris were on Sunday and Monday. Now, Monday is the day that Kelly went missing. Brent would be brought in for questioning the and the FBI by this time has gotten a hold of this missing teenager case and it is said that he showed deceit on another polygraph when asked if he knew the whereabouts of young Kelly Wilson he would and this is this is extremely odd he would then try unsuccessfully to seek immunity for testimony. And it's unclear what he was his bartering chip was, but it failed miserably. Now, boyfriend Chris. Chris Denton was never able to give authorities a solid alibi concerning his whereabouts on the night Kelly went missing. And the way that I've read most of the articles back then is these two goofballs couldn't get their story straight. If you throw out the failed polygraph, the first t- thing you do. yeah, I mean, I mean, it's like they didn't have siblings. I mean, growing up with a sibling, that's the first that we got to get our story straight. How did the house burn down? All right, this is how we're going to say it. Okay, this is how it went down. I don't know. But anyway, they couldn't get their story straight. And if you just throw out the polygraphs, their stories changing is pretty damning. But Chris is basically just throwing shit against the wall, seeing what sticks. And nothing sticks, and Sergeant Brown's not buying it. And according to the Attorney General, Chris would tell various versions of his story for several years, and it is stated that, quote, he was said to have struggled for answers when testifying before a grand jury, just like his cousin. Chris would also fail polygraph questions that the FBI gave about Kelly's whereabouts. The Attorney General's office and the FBI found some interesting things in Chris's vehicle, too. Now, see, 
Young Chris owned a 1984 Chevrolet Celebrity. I'll give y'all a second to Google that. No. He had purchased this panty dropper on August the 29th of 1991, but would sell it just over a month after Kelly disappeared on February the 11th, 1992, to a car dealer in Louisiana who just happened to ship it to Mexico within two days. Now, the FBI was able to track the car down in old Mexico and probably they didn't have to look too hard because all the panties that was falling down in the wake of this pussy magnet in old Mexico. But they did conduct a forensic vacuuming of the car and found debris, which did include hair strands and noted that the truck trunk mat was missing. Now, what you have to keep in mind is that's about as far as that information goes there is nothing else out there about whether it was dna tested whose hair it was did they cross-reference it with kelly's but you have to take in consideration that since chris and kelly were dating it would not have been a huge deal if they found her hair in his car what would be a problem is if they found her hair in the trunk of his car where'd they find it they don't say they don't even say it's hers Oh, damn. Yeah. They just say they found some debris and some hair. And that's it. Now, unfortunately, Chris Denton would succumb to cancer on March 19th, 2004. And rumors would swirl that he made a deathbed confession regarding what happened to Kelly. But as of today, those rumors have been found to be false. Now, the local DA, Scott Lyford, you might want to keep this in mind, is in Gilmer. And for those of you, your blood pressure goes up when we talk about the incompetence of the police department in West Memphis during the West Memphis three case, you might want to go pour yourself a tall drink or three fingers or whatever you need to do, because this son of a gun was a full patch member of the satanic panic. And for those of you that are unaware of the satanic panic, it was the main reason that the West Memphis 3 was convicted on flimsy circumstantial evidence, and it also put a lot of innocent people in prison that worked in daycare facilities all across the U.S. back in the early 90s. Basically, if you went missing or died, devil worshipers did it, and it was because you was drinking the blood and eating babies and worshiping Satan. Now, Sergeant Brown's investigation starts slowing down concerning Kelly's disappearance, and he's trying to catch Denton and old cousin Brent slipping up, but Lyford is hot and heavy on another case and tells Brown that he should look into their main suspect, a man named Wendell Kerr, who had been charged with child molestation and was rumored to be part of a satanic cult family. Sergeant Brown does just what the DA tells him, and he's, you know, doing good police work and discovers that Wendell could not have been the culprit because according to the trucking company logs for which young Wendell worked for, he was actually in New York from roughly January the 4th of 1992 to January 14th of 1992. He was a long-haul trucker. 
Now, Sergeant Brown would go to the district attorney, Lyford, and explain what he had found. Lyford turns around and tells Brown that he needs to stay out of the investigation, and if he does not, bad things will happen. That sounds like a threat. Well, uh, I believe you're right. I mean, I think, let's call a spade a spade, because in 1994, January Scott Lyford is named a special prosecutor and tasked with moving the investigation as it had started to go cold. Mr. Lyford convenes a grand jury and indicts eight people for the abduction and murder of Kelly Day Wilson, body in absentia. He's just saying that she's gone and dead. Despite the fact there's no forensic evidence to support his crazy tale, and the case hinges entirely on erratic eyewitness testimony. Murder indictments are handed down against Eugene and Geneva Kerr, which just happened to be the patriarch and matriarch of the family, the Kerr family. Their son, Wendell, his wife, Wanda Hicks Kerr, Wendell's brother, Danny, two family friends, Roger Don Holman and his wife, Tammy Jo Smith, and guess who the eighth person that they say is a part of this sordid tale, devil-worshipping, blood-drinking? None other than Gilmer Police's own Sergeant James York Brown. What the fuck? Yeah, the same man who had put up his own money to erect a, uh, I said erect again, billboard, With all of her information on it. And I just thought the Bible Belt, you know, kind of ended at the Mississippi. But no, the Bible Belt jumps the Mississippi and goes clean through Texas. You don't think the Bible Belt was in Texas? I didn't think it got that far west. Are you out of your damn mind? I didn't think it got that far west. Oh, I'm fairly sure. Oh, no, I'm a hundred percent positive because this shit takes off and people actually believe that these eight people are mem- are members of a satanic cult. And Scott Lyford, the a uh, the D.A. at the time states that the aforementioned eight that I talked about not only abducted her, but they proceeded to hold Kelly Day Wilson captive on the Kerr family property. And it is on this property that Kelly was said to have been sexually abused and tortured for nine days before she was ritualistically dismembered. And you're probably wondering, how in the hell does the lead investigator get tied into this? Well, according to Wendell Kerr, who was, remember, a long-haul trucker, he had met then just regular old James York Brown in the trucking business when Brown was not a policeman. And that's it. That's the only way he knew him. Now, there's no corroborating evidence to support any version of Lyford's sordid tale. And the case really starts to fall apart, and the Texas Attorney General has to come in and dismiss all the murder charges against the eight defendants just two months later. But the damage is done. Kelly went missing in January of 92. In January of 94, this special prosecutor and what he dubbed the Lyford team says that this sordid tale has occurred, but there's nothing to back it up. 
But for two months, that's all that's in the paper. That's the gossip going around Gilmer. And all of the leads that Sergeant Brown had worked so hard to chase down, he now has to spend his time trying to defend himself against trumped-up charges. Now, to really understand what took place with this satanic cult thing, we have to get into the rumors of devil worshiping and sacrifices, and we got to dive a little bit, little bit deeper into the Kerr family. As I like to refer them, the Hills Have Five Eyes family, because these... <laughs> the Hills Have Fives? Yeah, these... <laughs> These some guns are, um, I don't know how to explain it, man. This, this, mm -mm. so the Kerr family, or as the people in Gilmer refer to them, just the Kerrs, were considered, quote, country people and were rarely seen in town or at any of the local businesses. Now, the family mainly resided on Cherokee Trace in Gilmer, which is about three and a half miles out of town, but owned other property around Gilmer where they had made residence. The Kerrs have a checkered past, and just a warning, we are about to dive into a topic that most of you will not want your children to hear, so I am giving you fair warning. You have to probably preview this. But we are about to get into a lot of child molestation and just downright nasty, evil shit. So listener discretion is advised. So we're going to start off with the patriarch and the matriarch, Eugene Wendell Kerr, who was 66 at the time, and Geneva Skipper Kerr, who was 62 at the time. Now, they are the parents of... Children Wendell Eugene, Danny Oscar, Chloe, Ronnie, and then Marie and Donna. Now, Jean and Geneva would marry in the 50s and divorced sometime before the 1960s, but they'd get back together in the 60s, and Geneva would actually marry three men between marrying Eugene and then remarrying Eugene, and somehow all three of them men that she uh, had married in between the marriages to Eugene, they all died. So in late 1990, the first of 19 children, I did not misspeak, that was 19 children, were removed from the custody of the Kerr family and their alleged associates. Yes, associates. It seems that the Kerrs had several unrelated people that were house guests or staying on the property and just downright nasty sons of bitches. In November of 1990, Elizabeth Ann Gore, a social worker, was assigned to the Loretta and slash Wendell Kerr cases. Their four children had been taken into custody by Child Protective Services. In December of 1990, Wanda Greer, I'm sorry, Gear Hicks, brings a letter from her brother, Lucas Gear to social workers. The letter was addressed to Wendell Kerr. In the letter, Lucas, her brother, admits to having sex with his sister's son. Lucas would then confess to the city police officer, Becky Pope, and another child protective services worker, James McGuire, in just a short amount of time. 
Wait, go back, go back. He who did who had sex with whose son? Yeah, it it's it's just this is crazy. All right, so there's the curse, and there's this lady named um, Wanda Gear Hicks, and supposedly she is none the wiser until her brother Lucas writes a letter to her telling her, I'm sorry, writes a letter to Wendell. One of the curse, and in the letter, her brother says that he has had sex with Wanda's son. What? His nephew. Okay. He then goes on and confesses not once, but two more times to a police officer and another child protective service worker. Yeah, it's about to get confusing. So on January. Man. Oh, it's going to get worse, bro. On January 11th, 1991, Wendell Kerr and Loretta Kerr are given polygraphs regarding the alleged sexual abuse of their children. Wendell fails his, like, from what I can gather, he got his name right. But Loretta passes hers. Now, it would not be until March of 1991 that the Kerr children are taken into custody. And we've got, we've done a show about Child Protective Services here in the great state of Georgia, and what a shit show that is. But basically, Child Protective Services across the U.S. in the early 90s was an entire shit show. So just so that you hear me correctly, they give these two a polygraph on January the 11th of 1991. They wait two months and then take the children away. While investigating Wanda's case about her brother sleeping with her son, she tells the social worker investigating the Kerr case, quote, I would not date or allow Wendell Kerr to look after my children, end quote. See, Wanda, that, what you said right there, that's not going to age real well. It's, it's really not. So, I mean, when I tell you these people are a few bricks shy, I mean it. Because on May 17th of 1991, Wendell's indicted and arrested for sexual abuse of his children. Six days after Wendell is arrested, Loretta says piss off and divorces his ass. On July 1st, 1991, Lucas goes ahead and pleads guilty to child, the child molestation charges. Y'all have to understand, this dumb bastard can like writes a letter to his buddy Kerr saying that he's having sex with his sister's son. And six months later, they give him 10 years probation. That's it. 10 years probation? Yes, sir. That's not enough. No, 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 it's not. That's, that, that punishment does not fit the crime, no, my friend. We just, hey, I don't know if y'all hear, heard me earlier. We just gave a 17-year-old skateboarder who cut a couple of tires 90 days in, in jail. Good God. And we give this sick motherfucker 10 years probation. So let me let me keep this in my notes. So boy fucking okay. There you tire go. Not okay. Bad, bad. bad. And tire slashing, wow. like you said, gateway to murder. Yeah. <laughs> nephew, <laughs> nephew fucking. Yeah. Eh, boys will be boys. <laughs> and he's look, and here's the thing, people. I 
messaged Coach, what, Thursday night, Friday night? Friday night. I messaged you. Yeah, the first time you've actually reached out for help on this shit. I messaged you and said, I am eyeballs deep in nasty, shitty situation, and I got to, like, go bleach my brain. And we're going to make fun of some certain situations because if we don't, I'm going to cry throughout this whole – because I want to fucking go to Texas right now. I want to dig them up, and I want to beat the shit out of them if they're dead. And if they're still alive, I want to beat them. I want them to die from a thousand paper cuts. Yeah. Because this, it's just going to get worse. And I, I promise you that we don't, and we talked to Mr. Lumi, and we don't want to lose sight of the original case. But this, you have to know what's going on before she disappears so that you have an understanding of why this satanic panic bullshit spread like wildfire. So roughly a month after being arrested on July 16th, 1991, Wendell posts bond and is released from the Upshur County Jail. Now, rem- I can kind of see how the, the satanic panic began because, man, there's so much messed up stuff happening. You got to have an explanation for it. You can't just be like, these guys are sick fucks. Oh, well, is it Satan? Yeah. If you, well, you know, you know, they said he was over there drinking the blood of a chicken one night. God, that's you know, everybody knows chicken blood turns you into a pedophile. Yeah, immediately. Like it's like full moon and werewolves. Yeah, yeah. Shit. I mean, hell, what chicken we, I blood mean, equals incestuous pedophile exactly. every time, every single time. Now, remember, Wanda would tell CPS that, "quote I would not date or allow Wendell to look after my children." Let's go back. Let's rewind. See when she says this. She says on January. Uh, 11th, 1991, okay? Fast forward s- fucking five months. And guess what happens when Wendell gets out of jail? Yeah, he gets married to Wanda. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, yeah, he marries Wanda. Wanda marries him. And guess what? They get married at Eugene and Geneva's place out there on Cherokee Trace. <laughs> And the whole Kerr clan is out there, and their neighbors, Don Holman and Tammy Smith. Now, those were the two, only two non-family members allowed to witness this holy matrimony. So, here's where the satanic shit starts to get into. Now, let me, I'm not victim blaming, first of all. That is not what I'm trying to do at all. What I need people to understand, if you're listening to this, is... We're about to talk about some sick, nasty shit that happened to children. And when I mean children, I mean under the ages of eight. Jesus. Yes. And thanks. Thanks, Lumi, yeah. for suggesting this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We need all that beer after this one. So, yeah, that's what I told him earlier. <laughs> children going through that kind of trauma are going to have to find a way to deal with it. Yes. And they are going to come up with certain things that may not be true, but that's how they have dealt with this trauma. I am not victim blaming at all. I 100% am not. I don't wish this on anyone's children. I don't. I hope that all of them's dicks fall off. To be honest with you, not the children, but the molesters. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, God! Why did you make me laugh? Because this is me fucking awful we gotta laugh at certain yes, shit is. all right so the child protective service lady Ann gore she decides 
at the end of 1991, December 3rd, she's going to start interviewing Wanda Hicks's children. Now, this is Wanda, whose brother had molested his nephew. So one of her children says that they have, quote, a bone collection. And she's like, what? what? And then they start interviewing more children that have been removed. And they are interviewed by a Upshur County deputy, Kaylin Burris. In that interview, the children tell how people would give Wanda money so that these people could con- could come have sex with her children. They all they also make reference to video cameras being present, and they have to contact. From what I can figure out, this guy is like a child psychologist when child psychologists were unicorns, and so they bring this man, Doctor Charles Fries, in. And he basically conducts an evaluation on all the children. What he found, I don't know. He's not really part of the satanic panic part of this. I think he was basically brought in to see how he could treat the trauma. So on January 3rd, 1992, Ann Gore conducts a formal interview with Wanda Kerr's children, all of them. And one of the childs who had said that he had a bone collection says, I collect people's bones and all kinds of bones, animal bones and people bones. People? Yeah, yeah. He goes on and says that Wendell and Wanda taught them how to collect bones. Now, this child is quoted as saying, quote, like, if it's an animal, then you dig the eyes out and you cook them in the microwave and then you eat them. And then he says that Wendell and Wanda taught him how to keep animal bones in one box and keep human bones in another. And this boy goes on to say that before too long, he had so many bones that he had to make different boxes for white people's bones and black people's bones and one for just animal bones. Now, he acquired so many boxes that he then had to put all of his people bones together because he didn't have enough boxes to keep them straight. He then tells Angor how Wendell said he was going to cut his own leg and bleed out to where the child said very matter-of-factly, quote, now if Wendell cut his leg and died, I would have had to tear the meat off of it and I could save that bone because I would have to put that in my bone collection. Now, during the interviews of the children, the two non-family members of the Kurds, Don Holman and Tammy Smith, are mentioned as two people that sexually abused them, as well as two black females and an unidentified black male who was, quote, friends of Wendell's parents, Eugene and Geneva, as well as Wanda allowing her piece-of-shit brother, Lucas, to come over. But remember, she's an upstanding person. She would never let Wendell watch her children. Now, Roger Don Holman was married to a lady named Tammy Jo Smith by common law, and that common law is going to get thrown around a lot in this Kerr family. And they had a son between them. And Roger was basically a bus driver by trade, even though he reserved on, or he served as a reserve police officer for the Big Sandy Police Department, and Big Sandy's about 14 and a half miles southwest of Gilmer. Now, oh, Roger Don... 
he was accused of sexually abusing a child in Gladewater. And Gladewater is 14 miles south of Gilmer. Those charges were dropped. And Holman began to get this reputation that he was, quote, a religious fanatic who would quote scripture in his defense. Now, Don is said to have grown up with all the Kerr children and at one time was their neighbor. After his indictment in 1993, he joined Vocal. I did not even know this existed, but Vocal stands for Victims of Child Abuse Laws. Don was also a bodybuilder and was said to have kept his appearance neat and clean, which is in opposite circumstances of how the Hills Have Eyes family, I mean the Kerrs, kept theirs. <laughs> they are what we Southerners like to call white trash. Now back to the shit show that is the interviews of these poor children. One child in custody tells of how he was forced to watch a baby being killed and later told to kill a baby himself. He then told of how he washed the baby's heart and brain in detail, described how he gutted the baby and removed the baby's brain. This same child then went on to describe how this was done over the kitchen sink and how the blood was collected. The boy appeared quite frightened as he had been told by Wanda that if he told, he would be killed the same way. All of the children made reference to what they called the devil's pot. And the devil's pot is where all the blood was kept when they were cut. So if they cut themselves, they would have to go and before they bandaged it up and put some blood in the devil's pot. They told of how Wanda would cut their hands on purpose and make them bleed into the devil's pot. There was a reference to a pregnant woman and a large hole being dug in the ground and a fire being made. One child started having severe panic attacks when he actually hurt himself on a Coke can and the Child Protective Service worker tried to put a Band-Aid on him. And when asked why you don't like Band-Aids, he replied, quote, Wanda put tape over my mouth, her tie my hands, end quote, referring to Band-Aids. The children also referred to the sex as, quote, making honey. And they spoke of handcuffs being tied to the floor white powder being sprinkled on cake and being served coffee that, quote, had something in it. The stories that these children told get nastier, nastier, and sicker, but hopefully you get the gist of what, quote, allegedly was going on at the Kerr family residence. God, man. Yeah, I think we've said enough. (laughs) Yeah. If just a fraction of that shit's, and that's what I'm saying. They're guilty as hell of child abuse and child molestation. If a fraction of the other shit is how they dealt with it, I think you have to give them a pass because they're so young. I, I don't know, man. It's just fucked up. Anyway, so probably everybody, especially coaches, like, how the fuck does this tie into Kelly Wilson's case? Well, as all that shit was going down, Kelly goes missing in the middle of it. Now, remember, Don, the bodybuilder, his wife, Tammy, she she also had a child from a previous marriage to a man named Raymond Smith. Raymond hears about the Lyford team investigating the Kurt sexual molestation and devil worshiping and tells investigators they need to look into the satanic child molesting because he heard the Kerrs and their associates were the ones that took Kelly the night she disappeared. 
So Kelly goes missing on January 5th, 1992. Just after that, Danny Oscar Kerr is brought in on allegations of child abuse when he and his common-law wife, I told y'all they like to throw that word around, Connie Martin, decide that they just can't patch things up. Now, Danny's indictment stems from a five-year-old that confronted Danny in Walmart while the five-year-old is with a foster mom. Up until this point in Walmart, the foster mom had no idea that she was fostering a child molestation victim. And oh, wow. Yeah. The four Kerr-Martin children were immediately, supposedly, allegedly removed from the home. The oldest of these told of satanic rituals as they settled into foster care and referred to their grandmother, Geneva Kerr, as, quote, the bitch. They also told of another child. This is Raymond Smith's son by Tammy Smith. And these children begged Child Protective Service worker Ann Gore to rescue Raymond and told how he had suffered the same abuse as them. The children drew pictures that depicted all the acts that were done to them. Now, February 11th, 1992, Wanda is confronted by her children regarding the sexual abuse, the videos, the devil, and selling them for sex. Loretta's children are taken back into custody. I have no idea why. And then it's decided that they're going to make this photographic lineup so the boys could identify who molested them. However, this is never done. And sometime in May of 1992, Wendell pleads guilty to indecency with a child and relinquishes his parental rights. Wanda also relinquishes her parental rights as well, but wait for it. At the time she relinquishes her parental rights, she's carrying Wendell's child. You can't make this shit up, even if you did crystal meth for 10 straight days. I mean... Oh, what the fuck? But anyway, all right, so there's some other, like, weird shit going on with a foster mom, and then it's kind of found out that there's a foster situation that the Kerrs know, and there it's no better for these children at this foster house. And then Wendell gets 10 years probation. I guess, you know, molesting your children, you just it's just automatic 10 years probation. Now, supposedly, Wanda's children are taken to Austin, Texas, and put in foster care there. Now, we kind of refer to this in passing, but the Lyford team that's investigating this whole shit show, and when y'all, this goes on until 94 or 95, there's a lot worse stuff that we could get into it. I just can't. But the Lyford team consisted of Ann Gore, who was working as a caseworker for the Texas Department of Protective and Regulatory Services, or Child Protective Services. She had extensive knowledge of, and according to documents, and witnessed testimony of all types of sexual and satanic abuse described to her by the children. Debbie Minshew was also on the Lifer team. She was a pregnancy-related service worker and a specialist in sexually abused children. She was also witness to these children's testimony. We have Mr. Stephen Baggs, a retired investigator for the Department of Public Safety. He became involved with the case when Ann Gore and Debbie Minshew approached him in 1992. Baggs had investigated occult cases for many years prior. 
we have Mr. Brooks Fleeg, a police chaplain from Sulphur, Louisiana. He had worked with Stephen Baggs previously on an occult case in Louisiana, and they both worked as special investigators at the Upshur County DA's office under special prosecutor Mr. Scott Lyford. Now, out of all these people, you've got Scott Lyford bringing up the rear. He was an attorney from Galveston who had experience with child abuse cases dating back to 1979. And his involvement with this case started in 93 when district attorney at the time, Tim Cohn, cited conflict of interest and withdrew from the cases, saying that he had actually represented a Kerr family member when he was a defense attorney. Brooks Fleeg is about the only one that has any specialized training, and he's not one, he's not like the occult specialist in the West Memphis 3 case where it's all made up bullshit and it's million degrees. This guy actually has like a history degree and he does seminars on the occult and not just Satan worshipers. Now, during the investigation, the Lifer team interviews Jean and Geneva's two daughters, Marie and Donna, who state that all the shit that was going on with Wendell was basically hereditary because Gene and Geneva would abuse their children almost daily. Now, Chloe is also a child of Gene and Geneva, and Chloe's first wife would confirm what the two daughters, Marie and Donna, said was going on at the Kerr residence. She also witnessed Geneva's interest in satanic practices and daily readings from a satanic Bible and how she showed interest in sacrifices of both animal and human. Now, Marie had an adult son who worked for pregnancy-related services in which she did not trust because of his contacts with the brother Danny Kerr. I swear to God I'm getting through this, and then we're going to get to theories. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all, this is a convoluted story, but you got to, and I'm just, you'll see why. So, Chloe at the time, was 42. He's never implicated in being a part of this whole sexual abuse of the children that was going on at Wendell's house. Chloe was cooperative to a degree, but despite his knowledge that shit was going down when he was younger and the sexual abuse of his sisters, he still defended his mother and daddy and his brothers. Now, Chloe's first wife from Greenville said that he had nothing to do with helping her, protecting her, or anything of that sense, and that Chloe would kill anyone Mama Geneva told him to. Chloe gave a statement on things he could remember regarding his family, which included seeing a white police car parked beside the house on Cherokee Trace, and on one occasion in 1991 was introduced to a young blonde female by Geneva Kerr as My Friend Kelly. When Kelly Wilson's disappearance was all over the news, Chloe just happens to remember seeing a ring on Geneva's finger that matched the description of one Kelly was wearing the night she disappeared. Marie, Ronnie, and Donna Kerr also mentioned seeing Geneva wear this ring in the summer of 1992. Ronnie would go as far as to try and buy it from Geneva, but Geneva would not sell it. And all the children found this odd because she would sell anything she had at any time, including sexual rights to her children. Now that that's over with, thank God, we get to theories. 
Now, Kelly's biological father never believed the whole satanic panic explanation carried any weight and thought that Sergeant Brown was really on the right track before his investigation was derailed by this bullshit. And Kelly's mother, on the other hand, bought it hook, line, and sinker. And I'm pretty sure there was a preacher or a reverend involved, and he probably helped her. But despite the fact that Sergeant Brown was in contact with Kelly's mother, from what I could read, if not weekly, at least twice a month, telling her that he was still getting leads, he was still working angles, she takes this whole thing that he is part of this satanic cult and runs with it. Now, if we throw out the satanic panic situation in the hills have eyes, we are left with basically four or five people. Actually, four. We got Joe Henry, the video store owner. We got boyfriend Chris, cousin Brent, and skater, serial, tire slasher, Bibby. Now, we know that Joe was basically taken off the board early because he's going home to take care of his sick mother. What is a little shady is that in 2004, Joe's arrested for child pornography. Now, this is where the internet goes fucking crazy and says that it that's proof that he had something to do with Kelly's abduction. abduction. Now, while... Child pornography makes you a grade A piece of shit. It's not a gateway drug to kidnapping and murdering. You never know. Look at the Catholic Church. None of those archbishops ever murdered anybody that we know of. They just. <laughs> oh, I'm I know that they have. There's a Netflix documentary about it. I can't remember the name. Uh, the Watchers, the Keepers, the Keepers. The keepers, yeah. <sighs> but anyway, so let's get back to the serial slasher, Michael Bibby. Now, certain investigators implicated Bibby as a co-conspirator because supposedly he was friends with one of the Kerr children, and he had spent the night at one of the Kerr houses, and supposedly he slashes her tire so that he can get to a payphone and call and say that her car's out of order and that the Kerrs can come get him or come get her. But the only thing that ties him to the Kerrs is Connie Martin would say that Bibby knew Wendell. Well, knowing somebody and being friends with them is two different things. According to a statement by Connie, there was a phone call, like I said, that alerted them to, quote, go to Gilmer right now. And this is where everybody, this is where the indictments get handed down because all these dumbass investigators believe this entire satanic ritualistic killing scenario that would imply that Bibby made the call so that Kelly could be, quote, acquired by the Kerrs. Now, just like everything else the Lifer team came up with, you have to take a speculative look at their findings. They present some convoluted evidence that Michael Bibby lived with Wendell and that he was friends, but when you fact check it and you find these so-called witnesses, then these witnesses kind of all of a sudden, they can't corroborate it, they can't get their dates and then sometimes they, they just don't remember. You know, they, I, 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 that was so long ago, I, I, I just don't remember what I said. Now, Bibby wouldn't do himself any favors when he was questioned by the FBI, failing the polygraph questions concerning Kelly's whereabouts, but also keep in mind the poor 17-year-old bastard had just been told he's going to serve 90 days in jail. 
I think at the least you got a punk kid who got off slashing tires and didn't think he'd ever get caught. Yeah, maybe. But he did do 90 days, though. Dude, 90 fucking days? How many tires did he slash to get 90 days? Uh, just the two. No, well, they said he was a serial. I mean, to be serial, you got to do three or more. I don't know, man. I think to be serial, you're supposed to be part of a balanced breakfast. Well, I thought you had to have oats and raisins. <laughs> <laughs> now, as of the airing of this episode, Michael is still alive and well, and Gilmer, hopefully not wanting anyone to put two and two together. Like I said, I don't think he had any malicious intent. I think he was just a punk 17-year-old kid that was just acting out and got railroaded when he confessed to slashing tires and just happened to slash the wrong fucking tire on the wrong night. Now, we get into a scenario before we get into the other one, other two geniuses. Kelly could have seen someone she knew and whoever that person was could have asked her for a ride and she could have told them, sure, but hey, I got to go right around the corner, make this deposit, and then I can take you wherever you need. This would quell some of the theories out there that that grainy-ass 1992 security footage showed another person in the passenger seat. Since the night deposit was a lot of cash back then, I still couldn't get like a, I'm thinking it had to be no more than $250. But still, for a, a video store, that's a pretty good night. Because what were they back then? What, $3? They'd gone up to 5 before they closed? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you're renting a shit ton of movies if you're depositing... Or I guess, well, however the fuck I'm trying to say that. If you take 250 and divide it by $3 a pop, I mean, that's a pretty good night for a, video, a local video store in Gilmer, Texas. Pretty much, yeah, that's pretty good. So, since the night deposit did have some cash in it, from what I could see and learn about Kelly, which there's not a lot out there, but what I did find was that she was very... Like, grounded young lady, she had a good sense of right and wrong. It just seems out of character for her to be careless with, say, picking up a stranger and then putting money in a night deposit. I just don't buy that. So if she is, if she did pick someone up, if that grainy-ass security footage does show someone in the passenger seat, it had to be somebody she was disarmed by because she knew them. Now, in a 20-year anniversary article on this case, an unnamed police officer is quoted as saying, quote, three people know what happened to Kelly, and one of them is dead. Now, remember, her boyfriend, Chris Ditton, died in 2004, and the 20-year anniversary would have been 2012, so... Whoever this person is, is basically saying that Chris had something to do with it. Now, before Sergeant Brown and the other seven were indicted for the satanic panic angle, the chief of police of the Gilmer Police Department stated that Chris Denton, Michael Bibby, and Brent Ward were, quote, best suspects we have. Those three have to know something. A lot of people lied to us, and one of those three knows what happened to Kelly Wilson, but I cannot prove it, end quote. Now, the chief never said that they killed her, just that one or more of them knew what happened to her. 
Now, BB stated that it was just a coincidence that he fucked up and cut the tire of a lady that happened to go missing a few hours later. And there's nothing that I could find that stated when he actually slashed the tire. So it is plausible that she was abducted before the tire was slashed. However, looking at that picture that we're going to post, it doesn't appear that that's the case because the tire has been driven some distance for it to work its way towards the axle. And it would also lead you to believe that, like I said, she knew her attacker and either a weapon was produced after she made the deposit and a third party was involved to take her from the scene. But again, we're getting into some speculative crazy shit. Now, Denton and Ward were considered as prime suspects, like I said, before the satanic cult charges dropped. We know that Chris had a temper and also that he had an argument with Kelly the night before she disappeared. What that argument entailed is probably just typical 17-year-old bullshit drama. Trust me, shit's going on in my house and I want to kill someone. Denton would also be charged in a stabbing incident, however, later in 1992. So I think Chris's temper kind of got the best of him. If we throw out the failed polygraph test and just look at Chris and Cousin Brent's statements to police, you got a situation where these two just could not get their story straight. Add to that the fact that Chris makes a special trip to sell his fucking car in Louisiana to a dealer who just happens to ship their cars to Mexico, and it's one of those things that make you go, hmm, there might be something here. We also have the fact that Cousin Brent is indicted for perjury for lying about his whereabouts on the day Kelly went missing. This is the claim that he was working at his job and tried to get his boss and another co-worker to tell tell the authorities that he was working that day. But the dumbass forgot, and even if he had been working... He would, he would have gotten off at 4 o'clock on the day she disappeared. That gives him four and a half hours after he said he was at work where he could have done damn near anything. And here's the other thing. He, it's not like this statement gave him a rock-solid alibi. So there must be something more that's not been released to the public so that that perjury charge stuck. You're just not going to charge someone with perjury if you don't have the evidence to back it up. And that evidence doesn't appear to be in the public as of today. Now, Cousin Brent was said to have made the statement that he and two other people were at the video store 15 minutes before the store closed and that the two, the unnamed police officer, also stated that with three people knowing what happened to Kelly and one is dead, you have another what-the-fuck moment. But again, it's all circumstantial. He said, she said, bullshit. You have to also think about Joe Henry. He was asked if the dynamic duo of Chris and Brent were at the video store when they were closing. And while he may have been in the back, if three males walk in and they're fucking with your only associate, you're going to know that there's somebody in that video store. And that kind of throws a monkey wrench in Brent's innocence and how all of these fucking indictments are thrown, are just 
they're just throwing indict, indictments to everybody. I mean, fuck it. We'll give the Kurz indictments. We'll give the sergeant investigating it. We'll give everybody a fucking indictment. But the only one that stuck was the one to Cousin Brent. So, again, it makes you go, what the fuck is really going on here that they've not released? They've got to know something. What we can say for certain is that Joe Henry left the store to go to his mother's house, and Kelly, sometime after making the deposit, she is met with foul play. Whether her abductors meant to kill her or not, she more than likely met her demise that evening, and her remains were hidden and remain hidden to this day. Kelly Day Wilson was five foot two and weighed 120 pounds with blonde hair and blue eyes and was 17 years old at the time of her disappearance. If you have any information about this case, please contact the Gilmer Police Department at 903-843-5545. Here's the thing. If I never had found the satanic panic thing, I think they're on the right. I think Sergeant Brown's going to make an arrest within a year. I don't know if it's going to be boyfriend Chris and cousin Brent, but I think he's going to put a thumb on them hard enough. He's going to find out what's going on because he seems like a great A guy. And, and, you know, the biggest tragedy is Kelly is missing. The second biggest tragedy in this case, without getting into the child molestation, is the fact that this, this man's career was ruined by uncircumstantiated, just made-up bullshit because he pissed off a special investigator. I mean, the man wound up, I think he took his own life, if I read correctly, late, much later in life, but he lost, he was married, He his wife left him. Now, the chief of police stood by him, but the community outcry was such that the chief basically said, look, we're getting more complaints, so there's I'm going to have to let you go. Now, Texas being Texas, if he was Buford Purser, he would have just turned around and said, look, fuckers, he's innocent, and that's that. I don't know. I really don't know what to think in this case. It's, it's crazy. Well, it's like you said about the satanic panic, you'd think he'd make an arrest, but it's hard to describe to people that weren't around then. And I was a kid. I mean, I, I learned about it. I didn't really take it all in the way I should have because I was young, man. I didn't really know, but that satanic panic was a wild ass thing. Like you can, I guess you can blame, you know, music and like MTV coming along with music videos. And now they're having rock videos with all this non status quo behavior, you know, the black leather and the, all that shit. And, well, look at the West Memphis Three. Not Eccles, but the other guy, his best friend. The only reason he was looked at is because he wore black Metallica shirts. Yeah. I just don't get... It's that whole thing. I don't know. Society well, can be so fucking disgusting. It's hard to describe to people how big of a deal it was. I mean, it was literally... Everything had to do with devil worshiping back then. But about eight... I mean, I'd say about 1985 till about 1997. Like they get like on West Memphis three, they got the guy on the stand that got his doctorate and whatever it was. I'm going to say Satanology from a mail in, yeah, <laughs> correspondence course. Yeah, and never- and they took him at and and then here's what's so fucked up in that situation: the judge allows the state to have this dumbass up there, and they won't let a psych- a licensed psychologist from I think Chicago come yeah. down and and defend Eccles and them. 
because well we ain't letting no northerner come down here and tell us how to run our little arkansas town i just don't get it man i i, I still don't get it and i didn't get it back then when i was a kid and it's i don't get it now that i'm an adult so there's no clarity with old age it's just stupid people being stupid yeah i mean hell the even in the, and I know that it's probably similar in this. We just don't have the video evidence like we do in the West Memphis case. But referring back to West Memphis, you've got the fucking prosecutor up there with that survival knife cutting that orange, saying that it sure does look like the same wound to me. Well, no, it don't, you dumbass. <laughs> and you found the knife in a fucking pond a year later. I mean, but anyway, I think. Just like in the West Memphis 3 case, the biggest tragedy is all this satanic panic bullshit took away from three missing children in West Memphis, Arkansas, and this satanic panic bullshit took away from the fact that this 17-year-old young lady had her entire future in front of her is basically gone. Yep. And that's what's lost in that situation because you you just – squash any lead because now all you got to oh yeah man i knew old sergeant brown he was over at the curves well you ever think maybe he was over there at the curves because he knew they were pieces of shit <laughs> i mean i just don't get the rationale i did i've not I, like you said people just don't understand and when i listened to the trail went cold their episode about this he said the same thing but he grew up north of the bible belt and he still can't wrap his brain around how, and when I mean north, he's like, he sounds like he's from Canada, so he may be up there. He's one of them Yankee boys. He's one of them fellers that has to shovel snow. New York City. Get a rope. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what do you think, man? I mean, like I said, I don't really have, I think Sergeant Brown was going to find, and then he got screwed over. Whether it would have been, Dumb and Dumber, I don't know. Well, I think somebody clearly got away with murder, and I, I think that it's possible that the satanic stuff got in the way. But who knows, man? Maybe they, maybe he was on the right track, and I mean, he got screwed over. But maybe the satanic thing may have been, maybe not Satan, but the 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 molestations and all that with that family. Maybe it was on the right track, but you got to investigate closer to home. That's always the first thing you do. That's what I guess. Yeah. And suspects. You can't think tie. You more yeah. spectacular lead, you know, more sizzle, sizzle, salacious or sensational or whatever. I think the thing also, and just kind of echoing what you're saying is it's very, it's a very loose string tying her to the curves or her interacting with the curves because it's well known that they never came to town. So it's not like they're coming in every weekend. And they see this hot little blonde girl at the video store. They just don't, I don't see their worlds interacting. Like, hell, she probably didn't even know the curse existed. Yeah. And so, like you said, you start, if that inner circle and work yourself or work your way out, here's, yeah. here's what's so crazy. And I, you know, when I messaged you earlier, that you know, well, Friday night, early Saturday morning, and basically said, "Look, man, I'm down this rabbit hole." There's it, the the further you look into the curves, they've got two of the brothers or two of the sons, I guess is how you should look at it. Two of the sons are basically long haul trucker serial killers. I mean, they have left some circumstantial bodies in their wake, and then yeah. one of their ex wives basically was kidnapped 
from a family friend and kept on the at the Cherokee Trace property and basically the, all the brothers and y'all can just imagine how many children this young woman had to sire until she was able to get free but and they said that the way that they whoever it's almost like an indentured servant that one of the curs had her birth certificate and that was her only form of identification and whoever it was kept her birth certificate in their wallet as basically the little thing to hold over her head. Now, don't you run, honey, because you ain't nobody going to believe you're so-and-so. They just know you're my wife. I mean, it's fucked up. Yeah. Kind of what we do here, man. We cover fucked up shit. Yeah, but this one got out there on the envelope edge, and I don't want to ever go back that far. Because <laughs> I, I, like I sent you, it's I'm looking at 20 pages of notes. We finished, I think, a decent dabbling into what was going on but there's 10 more pages just on the curves and i just mm -mm. and if anybody wants to do more research arlo would be more than happy i'll email you that shit in a heartbeat and you can just (laughs) bleach your eyes out after you read it (laughs) oh but anyway all right so recommendations uh, you go first, sir, because I've got a good one. I, all right. I wish you hadn't have done that because now I can't think of mine. All right. So it's a TV show. It's on Hulu. It's got Hillary Swank. Something to do with Alaska. What the hell? Oh, I've got two, actually. Yeah, I forgot my original one until uh, um, because of what happened yesterday. Alaska Daily. It's on Hulu. It's a, it's a cool little show. It's a little quirky, but, I mean, it'll – you don't have to think, and it's kind of you know it's got a, it's got a good subplot or it's got a good plot to it. It's and they they not they've not weighted it down with a bunch of this bullshit subplot stuff that I cannot stand. So right now we're we're about three or four episodes deep into it, and it's 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 nice, man. It's nice. So what you well, you got I, two? You gonna double dip on me? Going to I got to because these both need to be said. Um, if you like Yellowstone. And you like weird shit? Amazon Prime Outer Range. It's got Josh Brolin in it. Dude, I couldn't get past the f- fifth episode. It's good, man. It is it's well good. written, but there's some crazy ass shit. Has season two come out yet? No. Okay. How are you gonna get to episode five out of eight and not finish? I just got tired of trying to no. keep up with it. Go back and finish it, you dummy. Anyway, it is fucked my, up though. My second recommendation since the new rankings came out and we're going to put this out on Tuesday, November 1st, on Saturday I recommend everyone tune to CBS to watch number 1 Georgia take on number 2 Tennessee and with any luck, the good guys will come out on top. Well, that and means they're wearing red and white. <laughs> no. No sir. Red uh, and white, y'all are red and black, ain't you? No, no red and silver britches. Red and silver britches, boy. Don't Man, you get that shit so wrong? Good, them, black, them black uniforms. I know, but listen, I, I, and I know every fan base has their their own breed of dumbass. But I am. I was so sick and fucking tired of hearing about how we're we're wearing black against Kentucky. We're gonna break out the grays against Georgia, and I'm like, you fucking moron! You're the away team. You have to wear some form of white. And I was just like, y'all are so, you just, 
fuck, you're stupid. You're just so stupid. Stupid, as a guy that we used to coach with says. You can wear your home jerseys away. You just have to forfeit a timeout every half. Shit. And I don't think, yeah, I don't think that's smart. I'm I was going to say, do I don't think you're going to shoot yourself in a foot that could be another repeat of the Georgia or uh, Tennessee Alabama game. The only time I can think of that that happens is when UCLA plays USC every year. The away team, they both wear home. That's true, but I also think, but who gives a shit what they're doing in California? The other thing is, if you play LSU, they're home. They they basically have solid, some sort of solid and white combo at home. So, but anyway, no LSU. Wear, I mean, they choose what to wear, so they got to let the away right, team right, know right, that right. wearing white. Yeah, that was a good question during the Tennessee. I mean, the Georgia Florida game about the neutral site games. Can you name all three neutral site? Yeah, games? we did. We the Red River Shootout. Army, Navy, and Georgia, Florida. Did you get it without? Yeah. I mean, that was probably the easiest one I had, I've seen in a while. And I don't know why I thought it was easy because I knew Army, Navy always played at Eagle Stadium, which they're moving that. Army, Navy. I think they're moving that game. But um, I could not think of Army, Navy. I knew Red River and, of course, Georgia, Florida. But yeah, as soon as they said it, I was like, the only other two that I know of would be Army, Navy, and Red River. Yeah. Cotton Bowl. I thought it was a good question. It was anyway, a good. It, it was a good question, but I just happened to get it right. Fuck face. <laughs> oh, it's too easy. It was the easiest one I had. I was like, well, I got it wrong. You <laughs> <jerk."> <laughs> well, I didn't get it wrong. I got it three quarters of the way. Yeah. All right. You got anything else, there, Slap Nut? Bro, you know I don't. Deuces.